The Thirteenth Guardian, Chapter 4, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, August 8, 8.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Philadelphia, located about 100 miles south of New York and 150 miles north of Washington, has always been dwarfed by both cities. Yet most people who visit the city find that it is charming in its own right. The city is replete with history and is where the world-famous Philly cheesesteak was invented. The Philadelphia Museum of Art, at the head of the Benjamin Franklin Parkway, was iconized by the movie Rocky. On most days, scores of tourists can be seen running up the majestic stairs that lead to the museum and throwing up their arms in imitation of Sylvester Stallone's character in the movie. The 70-year-old curator of the museum, Johnny DeMarco, has been the overseer of all exhibits that reside or visit the museum over the last 20 years. Today, Johnny was running across the Van Pelt Auditorium faster than he had run in more than 30 years, in a sheer panic. When the earthquake struck earlier, most of the exhibits had fallen off their pedestals and off the walls, ruined beyond repair. As Johnny surveyed the damage on the upper levels of the museum, he marveled that the walls of the museum building had not completely crumbled to the ground during the intense shaking. Johnny gently put his palm on the east-facing wall of the Gallery of European Art, one of his favorite parts of the museum, and felt genuine sadness that he was able to put his fist through a crack that now ran across the entire wall from top to bottom. Just six months earlier, the Great Solar Symphony by Guillaume Corneille, one of his favorite artists, hung on this very wall on loan from the Guggenheim Museum in Venice, Italy. As he looked around, his deep sadness turned to despair. He could see that the entire building had sustained so much damage in the quake that it would be virtually impossible to restore. That, unfortunately, meant the likely end of the fabled museum that he had come to love over more than two decades. It was then, standing with his hand on the wall of the Gallery of European Art, that he remembered a new shipment that he had taken delivery of a year earlier from a wealthy benefactor. It was being prepared for exhibition in the newest wing of the museum. Johnny recalled receiving an unannounced visit from an elderly, distinguished woman three years earlier. She claimed that a team of archaeologists in her employ had discovered the ruins of the Tower of Babel, as sensational as the claim was, Johnny was moved to action by the woman's calm, matter-of-fact demeanor. She had immediately struck Johnny as being wealthy, with considerable resources and connections. She shared video of an excavation site in the desert with a very large, dark granite rock lying half-exposed in the sand amid ruins that Johnny did not recognize. From the relative size of the excavator standing next to the rock, he estimated it to be at least 70 feet long. Sitting across from him in his office on the east wing of the museum's ground floor, the woman observed Johnny intently as he watched the video on her tablet. She noticed that his hands were trembling as he realized the significance of what he was watching. He would never forget their exchange as he looked up from the video he had just watched. What is this granite rock? Is it some type of cyclopean masonry? I've never seen anything like it, Johnny had asked, shaking his head in disbelief. The woman's response was to the point. It is more extraordinary than Cyclopean masonry. The block is perfectly preserved. 
Our estimate is that it is tens of thousands of years old and not a blemish on it. It has been buried in the sand for at least six to eight thousand years. We believe this is the central core of the Tower of Babel, the mythical heart of the tower. Johnny had never heard of the heart of the tower, but was convinced beyond a doubt that he had just been presented with the find of the millennium, and he was not going to pass on it. He quickly assembled a team of top religious historians and professors of the antiquities from the University of Pennsylvania and Ivy League University two miles down the street. Within two weeks, he had secured funding from the university and the team deployed to a remote desert region between Iraq and Iran. Over the months that followed, the team was able to verify the authenticity of the find, and at the insistence of the woman who made the discovery, the Philadelphia Museum of Art was selected to house the heart of the tower. The woman offered to pay all the expenses and fees to get the heart of the tower to Philadelphia. She also made a substantial cash donation to the museum. As Johnny came to learn, the heart of the Tower of Babel was a single, solid, black rock, more than 80 feet long and 15 feet wide, and was made of a rock that no scientist or geologist was able to identify. It was perfectly smooth, with a mirror-like quality to it, and was impossible to break. Top scientists from around the world were brought in to examine the rock, and they immediately declared it to be the hardest material discovered on Earth. Getting the heart of the tower to Philadelphia was nothing short of an engineering and logistics feat. The diplomatic firestorm that arose from the prospect of moving a sacred relic from the Middle East to the United States was swift and furious. But as soon as the benefactor made a few calls to several highly placed individuals, the Red Sea of bureaucratic tape parted with ease. The museum had to construct a new wing, more than ten stories tall, to house the remarkable exhibition. Construction had been ongoing for the last two years and was now all but complete. The heart of the tower was installed into the new wing a year ago as the frame of the new wing was constructed around it. The benefactor was adamant that the new wing be constructed on the western side of the museum, right next to the expansive museum archives. In the far western corner of the archives was an original bank vault, hundreds of years old, built into the foundation of the building. Only a small section of the vault, a large embossed crest, twelve inches across, was visible on the concrete floor. Most museum employees assumed it was simply a steel plate encased in concrete. As Johnny ran down the hall, weaving his way around debris from some of the world's most historic and revered art pieces, Johnny could not bear the thought of the heart of the Tower of Babel being damaged. As he got to the new second basement level, where the final touches on the installation had been underway, he was relieved to find that the walls of the new wing of the museum seemed to have taken the brunt of the earthquake fairly well. Most of the staff had run out of the building as soon as the tremors began, but everything was largely intact. The towering solid black rock still stood, magnificent and defiant. It had dealt with far worse over thousands of years. Johnny breathed a heavy sigh of relief, but the feeling was fleeting. He heard a deafening roar coming from the wall directly behind him. It sounded like a gush of heavy water flow. Johnny thought that perhaps a water main under the museum had ruptured due to the earthquake. 
He did not see the thousand-pound concrete slab that slammed into his frail body, carried by a rushing torrent of ocean water, that had breached the foundation of the storied museum, wreaking havoc on everything in its path. A mile away on the 75th floor of a newly constructed corporate office tower, Janice Pilford was sitting by her window looking down toward Independence Hall. She was the youngest partner ever elected at her top-tier global law firm. The firm occupied the top five floors of the new tower. Janice had recently been promoted to manage the Philadelphia office, the firm's global headquarters, where more than a thousand attorneys were housed. She would come into her office every morning and look down to Independence Hall and reflect on what the scene must have been like 250 years earlier when the Founding Fathers of the United States signed the Declaration of Independence in those hallowed halls. The resolve that they must have shown in the summer of 1776 provided the daily inspiration she needed to keep propelling herself forward at a firm without many other women or people of color in senior executive leadership positions. When the quake struck an hour earlier, the building shook and swayed wildly. While most of her colleagues scrambled out of the building in a panic, Janice felt an unusual, inexplicable sense of peace overcome her. She turned her office chair around to face the window and waited for whatever inevitable end was coming her way. As was happening in Boston, New York, and Washington, she watched as some of Philadelphia's iconic buildings collapsed around her. The city's skyline changed right in front of her eyes. The statue of William Penn atop the historic City Hall building toppled over, crushing several people below. A few seconds later, she watched as City Hall came crumbling down. Independence Hall suffered the same fate moments after. About a minute later, when the shaking stopped, Janice stood in her office transfixed at the apocalyptic scene below. Her phone kept ringing and chiming with text messages from friends and family members checking in with her to make sure she was safe. Janice was so distraught she did not have the strength to communicate with anyone. Frozen in horror, Janice did not realize she had been standing staring out of her window for fifteen minutes. It was her throbbing feet that snapped her back to reality. She sat back down and removed her expensive designer heels that had become part of her signature look. Is the worst of it over? she thought to herself. The deceptive stillness and quiet behind the solid glass windows made it seem like it was. She suddenly felt very tired and wondered if she could make it out of the building. She was sure her family was worried sick about her. As she walked out of her office, shoes in hand, an odd reflection on her glass office wall caught her attention. Janice turned around and looked out of her southeast-facing office window. Philadelphia is sixty miles inland from the coast. So Janice was confused when she saw what looked like a dark wave of water rising from the east. Janice recalled seeing online videos of the tsunami that struck after the earthquake in Japan in March 2011. The scene unfolding outside her window looked eerily similar to what she had seen on the Internet. But the water was moving much faster and looked to be at least five or six stories high. Many of the buildings that were less than ten stories tall were submerged immediately as the water made its mad rush toward her building. Down at street level, 
Janice could see that no one had any sense of the tsunami rapidly approaching. Some were looting shops, while others were trying to drive their way through the debris on the streets in an attempt to get out of the city. All transportation systems in Philadelphia had been decimated, and tens of thousands of people were walking down Chestnut, Market, and Walnut Streets in an attempt to get back home after the earthquake. Instinctively, Janice started to scream and pound on the window, trying to warn the poor souls below, but at more than 800 feet above street level and behind triple-pane reinforced glass, no one could hear her. Janice braced herself as the water crashed into the base of her building and was surprised to feel only a minor shudder in the structure. That gave her a sense of safety as she helplessly watched the raging waters carry away tens of thousands of bodies. From where she stood on the 75th floor, the carnage below was eerily silent. She could not hear any of what she imagined would be thousands of screaming voices and took solace in the fact that death was instant for the unwitting victims below. She ran across to the adjoining conference room and pressed her face on the window to look out west of the city. Against the backdrop of the sunset, she was surprised to see that the tsunami seemed to be picking up speed as the waters rushed westward past 30th Street Station, the UPenn campus, West Philadelphia, and further toward Conshohocken and King of Prussia. In all the videos she had watched from the Japanese tsunami, the water seemed to slow down after encroaching a few hundred yards inland and then started to retreat, but that was not what she was now observing. Janice looked back down toward the ground level and was petrified to see that the water was rising past the 30th and 40th floors below her. Two blocks across from her was the regional headquarters building of one of the larger East Coast banks. She knew that the building was about 45 floors high because the bank was one of her largest clients, and she had spent a lot of time with their in-house counsel and other senior executives. Their offices were on the top floor of the building. Janice stared across in disbelief as the building's roof sank below the waves. The raging waters did not seem to be slowing down. As the reality of what was happening dawned on Janice, the sense of resignation that she felt earlier when the earthquake struck settled over her again. This is not a tsunami, Janice calmly thought to herself. She walked back to her office, picked up her iPhone, and sent a hurried group of texts to her family, most of whom lived in Chicago. No one in Philly is going to make it. I love you all. See you on the other side. She fell back into her chair, and out of habit, as she did at the end of every workday, she flipped the top of her laptop shut. Her final thought was that the water rising just above her ankles felt colder than she expected this time of year. In Washington, what was left of the White House, the Capitol Building, and the Washington Monument were now under a few hundred feet of water. In New York, One World Trade Center only had its top ten floors above the water line. And in Boston, an entire city of millions had slipped hundreds of feet under the Atlantic. The epicenter of the global financial markets, the seat of the most powerful government to exist in recent recorded history, and many other cities and communities on the eastern seaboard, would ultimately settle a mile below sea level, and over the course of the next few months, would be buried under more than half a mile of ocean sediment and debris. 
And here's a special behind-the-scenes look with the author K.M. Lewis. Connect with the author at 13thGuardian.com. At this point, we're introduced to a mysterious benefactor who's an integral player in the unfolding events. Over the next few chapters, we'll learn a lot more about her very fascinating family history, and it will become clear that she holds the key to understanding what is causing the devastation around the globe. The video she shares of the excavation of the heart of the tower in the desert sands of Iraq is significant and will make more sense as more is revealed. Most of us have heard of the legend of Atlantis and the tale of its sinking, but we dismiss it as myth from an era gone by because no traces of the city have been found. I think it's amazing that several sunken cities have recently been discovered buried under the ocean sands, off the coasts of Greece, Japan, and India. Look up Yonaguni Jima in Japan or Dwarka in India, for example. Now, allow yourself to consider for a moment what would happen in that scenario. I wanted to delve into what this heart-wrenching experience would feel like on a very personal level by giving you a lens into what Johnny and Janice are thinking and feeling as their worlds pass away. What starts off as a regular summer day for them and millions of others ends in a catastrophe that reshapes the map of the eastern half of the United States in a matter of hours. For Johnny, the end comes as he stands face to face with the greatest archaeological discovery of the millennia. His final thought is to protect a piece of history that has withstood untold assaults over thousands of years, an oddly fitting culmination of his life's work. As Janice looks across to the ruins of Independence Hall, she's resigned to the fact that there's absolutely nothing that she can do. She will never see her family again, and nothing else matters. She comes to the tragic realization that the world as she knows it will disappear forever, taking with it any evidence of her existence. Perhaps what appears to be a deep sense of calm is in fact her surrendering to the inevitable. Things will only escalate from here. The 13th Guardian is available right now on Amazon and is already a bestseller. For more information, go to 13thguardian.com.